1976, Saturday, June 5th of 1976, at 7.30 a.m., the Teton Dam in Idaho sprung a leak. At first, the thought was, no big deal. It's a small leak. It won't create any damage. By 9.30, the leak grew to about 20 cubic feet per second. All of a sudden, it was a big deal. So they called in work crews with heavy equipment, bulldozers, to plug the leak. But it was too late. By 11.15, the work crews had to flee as their bulldozers were engulfed with water. By 11.55, there was total failure of the dam, and it caused destruction below, creating canyons, setting new sediment throughout the old riverbed. By 8 p.m., not even a full day, the entire lake was empty. One little leak won't do that much damage. But it's amazing the amount of damage one little leak can do when it's left alone, when it's left unrepaired. I think that leak is very similar to our Christian walk. Oftentimes, we think it's just a little bit of compromise. It's just a little bit of compromise. No one will even notice. If there was a visitor at 7.30 at the Teton Dam, no one would have even noticed. The, the visitors would not have even noticed the leak. And so we think the same thing is true. Just a little bit of compromise. No one's even going to notice. It's okay. But just as that leak grew, and in a short period of time the leak grew and caused massive destruction, so too does our compromise. It starts small. We think no one will notice. What kind of damage could it do anyway? But that one compromise will last longer and have more devastating effects than you could possibly fathom. And that's what we're going to get into today as we finish 2 Peter. We've been going through this study of grace. We started off with 1 Peter, and we, we talked about growing in grace and how God has lavished His grace upon you. He calls you holy and righteous. He says that you're a saint. I don't know about you. Oftentimes, I don't feel like a saint. That's what God calls you. He's lavished His grace upon you. He has given you an inheritance that cannot be diminished, destroyed, or corrupted. And so what is our job then? Our job is to grow in that grace. We don't earn the righteousness. We don't earn grace. Earned grace is not grace. Grace is undeserved favor. God has lavished His undeserved favor upon you. Our response then is to mature in that undeserved favor, to grow in that undeserved favor. So Peter writes 1 Peter to a group of Christians that are suffering under persecution. And he writes to them to encourage them to continue to grow in God's grace. In the midst of that persecution, false teachers arise and they begin to twist the gospel. They begin to compromise and so Peter writes 2 Peter, knowing that his time is near, knowing that he will soon be dead. So he writes 2 Peter as his final words of encouragement to stand in God's grace. Do not let the false teachers throw you off. Do not stand for compromise. Do not let even a little bit in. But stand in God's grace. And we're going to finish that 
today as we turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll start in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace, and count the patience of our God or of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and and to the day of eternity. Amen. All right, let's dig in. So he starts off with sense. Anytime we get to a sense or because of, we need to look back, right? So last week we looked at how the false teachers claimed that Jesus wasn't going to come again. And along with that coming would or not coming would be no judgment. That was their whole argument. That was what they were twisting. So they were saying, the false teachers were saying, you don't have to live a righteous life. You don't have to live morally upright because Jesus will never return and you'll never be judged. You can just do whatever you want. That was their argument. And they said, where is the promise of his coming? So Peter outlined the promise of his coming. Where, what's the proof? How can we know that Jesus is going to return? And then he outlined that he will return and he will judge. That there will be judgment. But don't mistake God's patience with apathy. Just because he is patient does not mean he's apathetic towards justice. God is a just God, and he will bring justice. There is a price that will be paid for your sin. The question is, who will pay that price? Jesus already paid it. Will you accept that payment? Or will you hold on and try to pay your own price? If that's the case, then judgment will come upon you. But if you claim that Jesus has paid your own price, has paid the price for you, then you will be declared righteous when that judgment comes. But God is patient. And why is He patient? Because He desires all to come to repentance. He desires all men, every one of us, to turn away from our sin and turn towards Him. Because of these truths, because God is patient, because God desires your redemption, because God is not apathetic, but is just and is holy and will come in judgment, because of these things, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The word holiness means to be set apart, to be other than. The term godliness means to make God at the center of your life. So what he's getting at here is, because God will come in judgment, what type of person should you be? Should you you look exactly like the rest of the world? Although there are different cultures throughout this world, and there are differences in those cultures throughout the world, every culture has something similar to it. And that is self-centeredness. Now, it might be displayed in one way or another, but every culture has a self-centeredness to it because humans, without submitting to God, will be self-centered. Without submitting to God, your life will revolve around you. You will think you are the center of the universe. What he's getting at here is turn away from that ideology. Turn away from that philosophy of you being the center and make God the center. Look different from the rest of the world. This will look different. Whatever culture you come from, there are people 
that use and abuse others for their own purposes. What he's saying is don't do that anymore. Make God the center of your life. And within that, let God touch every single part of your life. It is easy for us to become compartmentalized. Meaning, you know, we go to church on Sunday and we read our Bibles in the morning. We have a time of devotion and prayer. But as soon as that's over, then we mark our checklist and we go on living our life. And we don't let God touch certain areas. And we say, no, 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 God, that's not for you. That's for me. What area of your life are you not letting God touch? It's so easy to let something else become the center. Every single one of us has some desire, some hobby. I love mountain biking. It's no joke. I've said it before. I thoroughly enjoy it. I enjoy it so much that we're building a pump track in my own backyard. That's how much I enjoy it. If I'm not careful, mountain biking can become the center. I might end up doing what some people would say, eat, breathe, sleep, mountain biking, dreaming about mountain biking. I remember being in high school athletics, and that was like what our coaches want us, wanted us to do. Eat, sleep, breathe, football. Everything must revolve around football. And you make football become the center of your life. Now, it's not wrong to have passions in life. It's not wrong to want to pursue certain things in life. The question is, will you let God touch that part of your life? So one of the reasons why we want to build a pump track is I heard a pastor talk about when his kids were teenagers, they went out and they hired a professional skateboarder to build a half pipe in their backyard. And he said, what I wanted to do with this half pipe is invite my kids and their friends over to my house. And you would not believe the amount of gospel conversations that happened in my backyard because we had a half pipe. And I thought, man, that's cool. I would love to do the same thing in my backyard, but I'm not a skater. So we'll build a pump track. And my idea with that pump track is we're going to build this fantastic pump track and everyone in Doney Park can come and ride on the pump track. And I want gospel conversations to happen. That's taking this great thing that God has given you, a gift that God has given you, and letting him touch it and use it for his glory. What gifts has God given you? What passions do you have in your life that you can flip around and say, God, I'm going to use this to your glory. I want to have gospel conversations centered around you, but I want to use this to create those gospel conversations. Because judgment is coming. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness? Otherness. Letting God be the center of your life. But that's not all he says. He says, what ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Now, we have to talk about this a little bit because this word waiting for really means expecting. We can be waiting for something to happen, but expecting it not to happen, right? And the false teachers, their, their idea was it's not going to happen. And they were trying to convince the, the believers that it would not happen. But what Peter is saying here is that we're waiting for it as if it were going to happen. We recognize that, this, that the coming of the Lord will happen. So we expect it to happen. There are days when we sit at the dinner table and Jen has made what I think is delicious food. But maybe it's a little bit for grown-ups because we know there are certain kids that are going to hate that food. And we kind of have this talk of like, we're not just waiting for it to happen, we're expecting this to happen where a kid's going to sit down and say something about that food. And try not to eat that food. That's that expectation, right? Well, let's flip that around and make this a positive. We expect Christ to come back. We know it's going to happen. We can, we can be assured of that. So we can sit 
and wait for it to happen. Now this term hastening, there's two different ways you can interpret this hastening. One is that it is a uh, helping of the process, helping to bring something about. And there are some theologians that believe that this is what, what Peter is getting at. That he, What he's saying is that we are hastening, we are bringing about the, the second coming. And so they would say, how are you going to hasten the second coming? How are you going to help bring that about? And they would say, because God is patient and what desires all people to come to repentance, then therefore we need, we can help this come about by helping more people repent. The more people that repent, the faster this will happen. There's another way that you can translate that, and that means to earnestly desire. So they would say, the, the theologians that would translate it this way would say that we, we are expecting it and we are earnestly desiring it, that we can't wait for this day to happen. It's kind of like when, you're, when you know you've got a vacation coming and it's going to be an awesome vacation. It's not like an obligatory vacation, but it's going to be sweet. And like you're counting down the days for it. My kids, we're going to go on vacation this summer. We're going to go to family camp out in Nebraska. My kids absolutely love family camp. It's at a lake with a blob. Their cousins are all going to be there. They have already started the countdown a few months ago. Like, they're so excited. Every day they ask us how much longer. That's what these theologians would say. We're hastening the day. We, we need to earnestly desire for this day to come because we know that we will see God in all of His glory and we will know, finally know, true justice. Not the justice we see on earth, but true justice. And so we should earnestly desire that. Now, you can go either way with this. I'm going to tell you that I'm not... Uh, intelligent enough to decide which one it is for you. Uh, but I think the whole point of this is that we're waiting and hastening for the coming of the day of God that we should be asking ourselves, how should we be living? We should know because we know that it's coming. We shouldn't be living for ourselves as we're expecting it to come. We shouldn't be living for ourselves, but for God. That's the point that he's making. We should be living for God because we are expecting this to happen, because we know it's going to happen. We should be living for God. And sometimes that means sacrificing certain things. There are certain lifestyles some of us desire. But God is calling us to something else. It is very easy to live for ourselves. It is very easy not to live a life of sacrifice. And especially in America, where we have so many forms of entertainment calling our name, saying, come and do this instead. Come, invest your time and money. And what Peter is saying here, and I think it's so important for us in this culture, is that, the, that he is coming. There will be a return and judgment will come. And because we can expect this, we need to live for God. We will have all of eternity to pick up other hobbies. Right now in this life, how will you live for God? That's the point he's getting at. So waiting for, the, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so what he's getting at here, there's once again, there's a couple different ideas behind what's going on here. So you've got dissolved, which means to break apart. That's what that term dissolved means, to absolutely break apart. And then you've got this idea of uh, melted as they burn or melt as they burn. And heavenly bodies is literally elements. So what some people do is they take that and they say, okay, so... God is going to take all of the elemental elements, all of the elemental elements, all of the basic elements, the basic forms, the building blocks of life, the very structures, atoms, and he's going to break them all apart and he's going to melt them all down. And they might compare this to like a nuclear reaction or an A-bomb being dropped. And they say, God is just going to totally wipe out everything on this earth and the result is, oftentimes they say, well, since God's going to destroy the earth anyways, why take care of the earth? I don't think that's actually what's going on here. And there are a lot of, I think, respected theologians that believe that. I don't think that's what's going on here. 
I think what's actually going on here is that he is dissolving and melting. This is kind of a reference more towards a refining fire, that the earth will be refined. So when they want to refine silver or gold, what do they do? They melt it down. And as they melt it down, the imperfections start to come out, and then they remove the imperfections, and that's how you get pure gold, pure silver. It's not that God is going to utterly destroy everything. It's that He's going to take away, he's going, and He's going to use literal fire, and He is going to melt away all of the imperfections, all of the ugliness, all of the rebellion in this world. That's what he's getting at. I kind of think of it, here it might be better to think of it as a prescribed burn. What do they do for a prescribed burn besides produce a lot of smoke? They gather all of the dead and diseased wood and they burn it all away. And then what does it do? It clears room for new growth. So I think that's what's going on. And part of the reason why I think that is because of verse 13. But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. Now there's two words for new in Greek. There's neos, which means like brand new or fresh. So this fresh, brand new thing, this thing that was just created. And there's kainos, which is renewed. What we have here is the kainos. So what we could say... And it's like renewed or refurbished. So what we could say is, for a renewed heavens, that's more of a literal way to translate this. So we're waiting for a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. God isn't going to just wipe it all out and start fresh. He's not going to wipe it all out and create something out of nothing again. What he's going to do is he's going to melt away, he's going to take away all of the imperfections that have been caused by sin. And he's going to make it all new again. He's going to make this world new again. All of the pain that is a result from sin entering into this world. All the suffering. All of the ugliness. God's going to melt it all away. And that's where we find our hope. Our hope is not in certain things in this earth. If our hope is on a certain thing, like let's say mountain biking, what happens when I become paralyzed? My hope is gone. I've got to find a different hope besides mountain biking. What happens when your hope is in the physical activities you have and you get in a horrible accident? Your hope is gone. You need something else to hope in. What happens when your hope is in your relationship? When your hope is in your kids? It's so easy to have hope in your kids because you love them so much and that's a good thing, right? And then what happens when they rebel? Hope is gone. Your hope can't be in people. Your hope can't be in physical activities. The only thing that will last is God. That's the only thing that can produce true hope. Some of you wake up every day in horrible pain. Your only hope is God. My dad, he's got a degenerative disc disease. Word on the street is it's genetic, so that's something I can look forward to. He is in tremendous pain. Every day. He has titanium in his back now. He can barely bend over. But he still can have hope in Christ. And the hope is that one day his back will be renewed. One day that degenerative disc disease will be done away with. But some of you are experiencing emotional pain. And you know the sting and the pain of death. You were so close to someone and you loved them so much. They died. Where's the hope in that? Without Christ and without God renewing this world, there is no hope. 
And for some of you, life killed your dream. I think of the Les Mis song, I Dreamed a Dream. I love that song. It's all about this girl who, who had this wonderful dream of how awesome life was going to be, but then life happened. And it killed her dream. Life killed the dream. And sometimes life is just full of disappointments for one reason or another. Maybe it's your own fault. Maybe someone else did something to you. But life has killed the dream and it's just been full of disappointment after disappointment. It doesn't go at all how you wanted it to go. Where's your hope? In that circumstance, the only hope is that God will renew this world. So he's going to create for us. He's going to renew the heavens and renew the earth. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, in which righteousness dwells. This is the reason why we wait. This is the reason why we hope. Righteousness means that God has made everything right. So not only is he going to make a new heavens and a new earth, not only is he going to renew the heaven and the earth, but he's going to make it a righteous place, a place where there is no more suffering, there is no more pain, there is no more degenerative disease. It will all be how God originally intended it, where its sin no longer has its impacts. That is what we wait for. That is the promise that we hold tight to because without that promise, we might as well eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no point left in this world. So we hold tight to this promise that God has given us that He will renew everything. And in that renewal, His righteousness will dwell. Peter continues, Therefore, beloved, because we hold on to this, because we hold on to the fact that He is going to renew all things, because we hold on to the fact that He will come and He will judge, He's going to return, and in that return, He's going to judge, and when He judges, He's going to renew all things. Because of all this, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, since we are waiting for the righteousness to dwell, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish. Be diligent means to do one's best. To work hard at this. So this should be our motivation. It's not to earn our righteousness. We're not to work hard to become more righteous. But because we know how this is all going to end, because we know the ending, Work hard to be found by Him without spot or blemish. Spot and blemish, they're both defects, right? And this is actually a reference back to the false teachers. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says that they are spots and blemishes. So they are defects. They are bringing in defective theology. And so what he's encouraging us to do here is because we know how everything's going to end, we need to be diligent, we need to work hard that we do not let the false teachers create a defective theology in our minds. That we don't follow the path of that defection. That we don't say, hey, they're right. And we'll get a little bit more into their theology in just a bit. But that's what he's telling us, is to work hard, be diligent that we don't let the defection in. And then he continues, and at peace. So we're going to work hard to not be found without spot or blemish and to be at peace. Peace means to have a harmonious relationship with God. God has paved the way for us all to have a harmonious relationship with Him. But the problem is on our side. So at one point in our life, every single one of us here shook our fist in rebellion against God and we said, we want to do it our way. Forget you, God. I know you tell me not to lie to my parents, but I don't think you understand the circumstance here. It's definitely going to be better for me to lie to my parents right now. And you can justify it really easy. That sounds really good. But in the end, that's telling God, I know better than you. That's rebellion against God. And for this reason, we, ter we have separated from God. We deserve eternal death. But God, because He loves us with such a great love, came and He paid the price for us so that we can have peace with Him. He has provided the way to peace. All we have to do is quit rebelling. 
quit saying, forget you, God, and put our faith and trust in him and his work, in his death and his resurrection. He continues, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So we're supposed to be diligent, and we're supposed to count the patience as our Lord as salvation. So what he's getting at here is that God's patience produces our salvation. So the false teacher's argument was, where's the promise of his coming? He hasn't come yet. Keep in mind, you're only a few decades out from his resurrection and ascension. They're already growing impatient. They're already saying, wait, where is he? He's not coming. And they've confused his patience with apathy. And what Peter is, is encourages, encouraging us in here is, don't confuse his patience with his apathy, with apathy, but realize it is because of his patience that you are saved. God is patient with you. In your rebellion, God is patient. As you tell him, forget you, God, he is patient. And it is because of his patience that you are saved. He could have come back at any time. He could have come back the day you turned to him. He could have come back the day before. It is because of his love for you that he has waited for you. I think this is important for us to understand that God is patient with us because sometimes we don't want to be patient with ourselves. Sometimes we're like, oh man, why do I keep doing this? And we beat ourselves up and we run into shame. Not understanding that God is patient towards us. But sometimes we're not patient with each other either. And we try to push people faster than God pushes them. And we think, why don't you look more like me? I've been a Christian for 40 years. I got this all together. That's sarcasm, by the way. But we try to push people. One of my mentor pastors used to always say, man will promote you faster than God will promote you. Meaning God is patient. God is patiently working in your life. Can you slow down and be patient? Slow down and let God do the work. So count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So the unstable and ignorant twist these scriptures, and it ends up, the, the result is their own destruction, right? So they take the scripture, and they twist it, and they manipulate it, they do some exegetical uh, ninjutsu, and all of a sudden, they've twisted things to, to fit their own worldview. That's what he's warning us against here. Now, I want to make a disclaimer, because there is a difference between being wrong and twisting things. We've all had some wrong theology at some point in our life, right? The difference is, when confronted with Scripture, are you willing to change? I've had some pretty funky theologies in my life, and I had people sit me down and say, look at Scripture, Aaron. This is, this is the theology that's correct based on Scripture. And I've had to say, I was wrong. You're right. It comes to twisting when you get confronted with Scripture, with theology based on Scripture, rooted in Scripture, and you say, no, that's not right. Let me twist some Scripture around on you. So it's okay to have some disagreements. It's okay to have different, some differing theologies. The difference is, do you twist Scripture? Do you manipulate Scripture for your own self-centered desires? That's what the ignorant people were doing. They were twisting scriptures to fulfill their own self-centered desires. They were manipulating scriptures, and it all results in their own destruction. So, he doesn't just quote scripture, though. He also says, the ign he says, there are some things in them, the, the them here is the writings of Paul, that are hard to understand. So what's really cool about this, and like oftentimes we don't think about this, but the apostles were reading each other's letters. 
Think about that for a second, because I think that's so cool. Peter was reading Paul's letters. Most likely what he's referencing here is the letter to the Galatians. They were writing to about the same audience. Peter's is written a little bit after Paul's. So most likely they were writing both to, to churches similar in that area. Peter read Galatians. Think about that for a second. And what's happening is people are twisting Paul's words. So Paul writes this letter to the Galatians because what happens is the there are uh, churches in the area of Galatia that have come to know Christ, that put their faith and trust in Christ, and then these guys called Judaizers come in. And the Judaizers say, okay, you believe in Jesus, that's great. Welcome to salvation. Welcome to the country club. But now if you want to remain righteous, you need to work for it. And the first thing you need to do is get circumcised. And they start to tell them and try to convince them that righteousness is all based on your works. You got saved because of Jesus. Now you need to work for it. And if you want to maintain it, you got to work for it. That's what they're trying to argue for. So Paul writes the letter to Galatians to refute this. And as we were studying Galatians, we ran into these, uh, these slides here. I want to walk through them. I think it's so important to understand. And as we wrap up this, these ideas of grace, I want to walk through these again. Can we go to the next slide, please? So I want to walk through these slides because we get this idea of this is what, this is what the Christian life looks like. And we think that there's legalism and license. And there's a tension here between legalism and license. And, and most of us know that one of these is wrong. And so we want to find like some kind of balance in our life. Now, some people think, well, we don't want to become the, the antinomianisms. We don't want to become the lawless people that Peter's writing against because we can clearly see, in fact, Peter's going to call them lawless people, right? Well, we don't want to be lawless. So we're going to, if we have to fall on one side or the other, we're going to fall to the legalist side. Legalism simply means earning your righteousness. That's the, that's an easy definition. So we think that we will fall to the legalist side because that's the tension, right? But some of us grew up in legalist households. Some of us went to legalist churches. And we know the pain that legalism can bring. And so we decide that's not right. God wants us to be free, and we start to fall towards the license side. And we think that this is the tension. And I'm going I'm to be honest with you, most people that fall to the license side, and for those of you who fall to the license side, listen to me for a second, you're also a legalist. You're a legalist in your license. Because what does legalism mean? Legalism means earning your righteousness. And oftentimes, when you fall to the license side, you think, I'm more righteous than those legalists. Those stupid legalists, they just don't know what they're doing. They're, they think they're working for their salvation. But they need to be more like me, more righteous like me. We all have a bent towards thinking we can earn our salvation. But this is a false dichotomy right here. This is false. This isn't the real tension. Let's go to the next slide. The real tension in the Christian life is between the spirit and the flesh. The flesh is anything that opposes the spirit. The spirit is the conviction that, of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit convicts you. The Holy Spirit calls you. We are called to submit our lives not to rules, not to the law, we are called to submit our lives to the Holy Spirit. And as we submit our lives to the Holy Spirit, we are living in the Spirit. But both legalism and license are, are parts of the flesh. They're the flesh playing out in your life. So you might say, so, so where does that land on this scale then, Aaron? Let's go to the next slide. Thank you. Uh, so the flesh operates through both license and legalism. That's how the flesh operates. When you're earning your righteousness, what are you doing? You're letting your flesh work out your own righteousness, right? You're working hard. You're letting your flesh work hard for righteousness. That's part of the flesh. The license is submitting to the desires of the flesh. 
They're both on the same side. So you know that one person? I know everybody knows that one person that was like the perfect Christian. They did everything right, right? They, they didn't do any sinful behavior. And you just knew that they, they read their Bible five minutes every morning. And they were the perfect Christian. And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, maybe a month later, they've left their wife and their kids. They've joined some crazy cult and they're doing lots of drugs. And you're like, how did they fall so far? Well, the answer is they didn't fall far. They were always operating out of the flesh. Now they're just letting the flesh operate in a different way. They were always operating out of the flesh. Now they're just letting the flesh operate a different way. And I've known so many people that were lost in drug abuse, lost in adultery, just going crazy with their life. And then they came to know Christ and they started to act right and they started to look like the perfect Christian. But they never really let grace in. And they were so afraid that if they let grace in, they'd fall right back. So what were they doing the whole time? They were still operating out of the flesh. Paul argues against legalism. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. And he outlines that both license and legalism are operations of the flesh. And so what do these false teachers do that Peter confronts? They take that and they say, oh, so we don't have to follow any laws, so we can just go do whatever we want. They're twisting Scripture so that they can fulfill their own desires. And that's not what Paul was arguing for at all. He wasn't arguing saying you can just go do whatever you want willy-nilly now. No, he wasn't arguing for that. So this is what they're doing. They're they're taking these... uh, Arguments by Paul, and they're twisting them to go. They're still operating out of the flesh, but they're going from legalism to license, and they're still in the flesh. That's what's going on. And so he's he's confronting them here, and we get to the crux of the letter. The last two verses, it all leads to this. These are Peter's final words. Peter, who walked with Christ. Peter, who denied him. Peter, who was restored by him. Peter, who would end up dying a martyr's death because he wanted to testify for Christ. This is his final words to us. You, therefore, because people twist Scripture, because people want to operate out of the flesh, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So then he gives us this encouragement, right? He says, take care or be on guard. Have your defenses up. There are people, there are false teachers out there that will try to manipulate you. There are false teachers that want to use you. There are false teachers that are going to twist Scripture, and boy, do they know Scripture well. And they'll make you feel like you're inferior because they know Scripture so well. And they're going to twist it so well that you will feel like they must be right and you must be wrong. Be on guard. If people are not encouraging you in Christ, if people aren't building you up, you better have some red flags up. Because they want to use you. And if people are trying to sell you something, saying that you you need them to grow in Christ, there better be some red flags up. Because they're trying to use you and manipulate you. So he's saying, be on guard that you are not carried away. That false teacher wants to convince you. Wants to get you on their side. So do not be carried away with the error of lawless people. They're still operating out of the flesh. And lose your own stability. The word stability here means firm grip. And so what he's getting at here is once once you start to walk down that path, you lose your firm grip on truth. You knew right from wrong. You knew what was true and what was false. But once you start to compromise a little bit, once you let a little bit of compromise in, even if it, you know, you don't think it's going to affect anyone, once you start to twist the truth of Scripture just a little bit, 
You begin to open up the floodgates. You become like the Teton Dam. And you don't think anyone notices, and then the flood comes in. And you lose your ability to discern what is truth and what is not. And we see this happening in our culture today. We've turned away from Scripture, and we see there is a big group in our culture today that do not know basic truths of human biology. Well, how did they get there? Well, they started with a little compromise. They started with a little compromise, and they lost their own stability, and now they want to convince you to compromise and lose your own stability as well. He continues, and he gives us this but. So be on guard. This is what these people want to do. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So how do we stay stable? How do we not compromise? How do we keep the truth of Scripture? How do we make it so that the false teachers don't knock us off our guard? How do we make it so the false teacher doesn't convince us and bring us in and away from their own, away from the truth of Scripture? It's by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go through a couple more slides really quickly here. So this is the, I like to call it the legalist theory or the the flesh theory of how we grow in grace. And what happens is we're walking along doing our works. We realize that our works can't save us, so we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? But then what happens is somebody comes along and tells us we need to work for our salvation. So we begin to work for it, and eventually we'll earn our righteousness. That's the the legalist or the flesh theory of discipleship. But this is how this really works. This is the reality. You're walking along doing your works. You come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you start to grow a little bit because you work really hard. And then you mess up. And in your failure, you fall into shame. And you let your shame overwhelm you. And sometimes you think you fall into the license side of things, right? Well, I'm already a failure. I might as well fail big. And eventually, you feel the destruction of your failure. And so you start working hard again. And you're going to dig yourself out of this hole you've created. And you work really hard until you fail again. And you go back through that cycle. And that's the sin, shame, sin, shame cycle. And you'll never mature as a Christian while you're in there. So what's the reality? This is the reality that the Gospel gives us. This is the reality that Peter and Paul by the Holy Spirit paints for us. It's you're walking along in your works, you realize that you can't earn your salvation, so you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and boom! He makes you righteous. He calls you righteous. You've been washed, you've been pure, you've been made righteous, you've been made just. He makes it all happen. And you're like, but Aaron... That, that may be true. He may call me those things, but I really struggle with sin. You don't understand. I'm still in the midst of the struggle. Well, let's go to the next one. So how do you start to let your actions catch up to your righteousness? And notice what I say there. It's not that you make yourself righteous. It's that your actions begin to catch up to your righteousness. You could say you begin to mature or you begin to grow in that righteousness. Let's go to the final slide, actually. It's by reminding yourself of the truth of Scripture. That's how you grow in this grace. It's not by working harder. It's not by beating yourself up. It's by returning over and over again all the times you fail by going back and reminding yourself what God has done for you. He has called you righteous. He has called you holy but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. It is by growing in grace. That's how we grow in grace. So when you mess up, when you fail, you go back to 1 Peter, starting in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother affection, and brotherly affection with love. It's the steps of ascension to to growing in grace, to maturing in the position God gave you. That's how we do it. 
It's not by beating yourself up. It's not by earning your righteousness. It's by recognizing that God has already made you righteous. He has lavished His grace upon you. He has given you an inheritance that cannot be diminished, destroyed, or corrupted. He has called you holy and blameless. When you deserved death, He gave you life. And as we remind ourselves of that, we grow to be the person He has created us to be. That's what verse 18 is getting at. And then he closes with, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. There are people, there are false teachers that want to convince you God's grace is not real. They might try to say it's not real because you have to earn your righteousness. They might say it's not real because because you'll never be judged. So what does it matter anyways? Both of these are lies. And both of them end in destruction. But we have hope. We know and we expect a renewed earth. Renewed heavens. And we know that God has lavished His grace upon us. And even more so, He's given us the ability to grow in that grace. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it changes us, that as we look at it, as we meditate, as we submit to it, you grow us in holiness. You grow us in the righteousness that you've already placed on us. We thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. And yet you give it to us freely. You lavish it upon us so much more than we ever deserve. And we pray that you will help us in our failures to remember and to remind one another of your grace day 